Good morning, everyone. If you will open your Bibles to Psalm chapter one, that's the passage for this morning. We are still in our series, The Art of Joy. We're working through five spiritual practices to help us as a congregation to have joy in Jesus. And while you're turning to Psalm chapter one, I'll tell you that one of the reasons why we're in this series is because we need spiritual disciplines in this time to kind of correct the disrupted schedules, disrupted lives that we've had in 2020. I sense um, as one of the pastors on staff here at our church that we need to take our spiritual lives back to re-engage with Jesus, re-engage with the word and kind of reinvent what our faith looks like with changed schedules and changed school schedules and Sunday schedules and, and that sort of thing. So the goal for this series is to help us have joy in Christ that combats the disruptions that happen in our lives and that we're all going through right now. Um, to illustrate it, I'll say that, um, you know, sometimes when trials come into your lives or into our lives as a church community, they sometimes they're like a blizzard in that they're cold, they're harsh, and they're sudden, and then they go away. And sometimes trials are like a winter where it's dark, dreary, wet, and elongated. It's, it's a longer time. Uh, all indications tell us that this COVID season is a winter, not a blizzard. Because of that, we have to take the time to combat the dreariness, to combat the darkness with joy in Jesus. It's going to take some effort. And as I said, some, some reinvention in our schedules. Um, the goal here, of course, as I mentioned, is to stoke up that joy with new practices that kind of bring us in contact with who God is to keep us from getting distracted or discouraged and depressed in this wintry season that we're in. So, uh, how do we do that? What practices can we do to stoke up joy in Jesus? Well, Psalm 1 tells us, um, you know, last week, Ethan spoke on the discipline of preaching the gospel to yourself, speaking the truth of, of the words into your life. We're going to build on that today with a practice. So if you look at the passage, you'll see that uh, it tells us something about joy. And in the first word, blessed, blessed is, it's uh, it's a passage about how to live a blessed, joyful delighting in God kind of life with the Lord. In the first two verses, it basically says, don't do this. And then in verse two, it says, do this. And then in verses three through six, it basically says, if you do this or not do this, here's what your life will look like. So what is this? What is the thing that we have to do to, to have joy in Jesus? Well, in short, we are called to meditate on the law of the Lord to joyful delight in God. That's what we're talking about today. Meditating on the law of the Lord to joyful delight in God. So let's read our passage and we'll see it. Psalm 1, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You'll see in verse two, it says his delight, this person who follows God, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And because of that, he meditates on God's law day and night. Because of that, he's like a tree 
and we'll continue to work through the passage talking about biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is uh, throughout scripture. One notable place is in Joshua chapter one. So Moses is now uh, dead. He has not entered into the promised land and God's people in Joshua one are about to, God is speaking to them saying, I'm gonna enter you into the promised land and there will be dangerous times ahead. There are changes ahead for the nation of Israel. And there are dangerous times that where some of those people will lose their life defending God's people. And so God speaks to the, the, um, the people of Israel. And you would imagine, he says, something like what is mentioned in Joshua chapter 1. Be strong. Be courageous. And you can imagine every young man of fighting age hearing from the Lord, hearing from Joshua, be strong and courageous. And they would say, yeah, we need to be strong and courageous. We're about to go to battle. We're about to go uh, you know, enter into this land that God promised us and we're finally doing it. We need to get strong. We need to put some shields together, some swords, some, um, we need to talk about military, um, strategy, but that's not what God does to prepare them for the promised land in Joshua 1. So if you, uh, flip over to Joshua 1, it says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, Get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give them to the Israelites. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the law. My servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. And in Joshua 1.8, it says, keep the book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. So God is saying the ticket to success, the ticket to thriving, the the, the, the goal here is not just to live in the promised land, but to meditate on God's law day and night. And in Psalm chapter one, it's an introduction to the book of prayer in the Bible. And Psalm one says the same thing, meditate on God's law day and night. So biblical meditation, we're going to talk about what it does, how to do it, and why it works. So what biblical meditation does for us, what are the promises that God shows us in Psalm chapter one? How can we do it? Practically speaking, how do we put this practice into our lives so that we can have joy in Jesus? And then thirdly, why it works. And then just one quick note, we will be uh, putting a link in the comment section here with a, a practice, a, a PDF of a practice that you can put together in your life with your Bible reading and your prayer. And so be looking at the end of the sermon for that as well. So what biblical meditation does? What, is it, what does it promise? What does God promise and how does he use it in our lives? If you look in verses three and four, here's the promise. The person who meditates on God's law day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. So the promise is that there's two images here. There's a tree that's planted by the stream that represents God, and it yields fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. It's evergreen. It's strong all the time because of its nutrients that it constantly receives, and it yields fruit in season, and that is contrasted with the other imagery, chaff. Typically, when we talk about spiritual disciplines and, and making good choices to help you be close to Jesus and to believe in God more in your life, spiritual disciplines are organizing your life so that your mind, your will, and your uh, emotions, that they're all kind of in tune and serving God instead of other um, idols or other gods. 
When we're talking about spiritual disciplines, we don't think of those two images. We think of if you're, if you do good things for God, you'll be a strong tree. And then we typically think if you don't do things for God, you'll be a weak or a dying tree. Or maybe we could interpret, misinterpret the passage by saying people who make good choices and honor God in their lives, they're like uh, trees that are close to the stream. But people who don't make godly choices are like trees that are distant and far away. But that is not the contrast that is made in this passage. The contrast here is made between a healthy evergreen tree that is planted by the stream of water and chaff. What is chaff? Chaff is the light shell that's on the outside of grain. When you harvest grain, the chaff flies away and it blows away. It uh, doesn't produce anything. It's temporary and it's functionally worthless in terms of you harvesting grain. The point here is that there, uh, the difference between knowing God and not knowing God is not one of degree of religious decisions. It's one of very nature. When you come to Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, when God is in your life, it's not like before you become a Christian, you didn't make that many good choices, and then you start making really good choices, and then maybe you can start calling yourself a Christian. When you become a Christian, God's Spirit indwells you because of the salvation you have in Jesus. In that moment, you have a new identity, a new future, new priorities. God works on your heart in new ways, and because you become, you go from an unsaved person to a saved person, you don't go from a dying tree to a thriving tree. You go from chaff to a healthy tree that has been planted by the stream of water. Some people say that, um, you know, because of that, uh, godly people are nicer and would therefore be better than ungodly people because they would think that it's a matter of degree and not nature. Um, can I just kind of combat that and say, I, uh, in a sense, I am professionally religious because I'm a, a pastor. It's my vocation. And I know plenty of non-Christians who, in a sense, are better behaving people than I am. I mean, I have my own issues and my own shortcomings, my own areas of selfishness. And I know many people who don't know Jesus, but because of their inclination, because of their inherent maturity or intelligence, they end up being higher functioning people than maybe I'll ever be. I'm changed because I know Jesus. And so I am growing and thriving and better than I would ever be if I didn't know Jesus. But that is totally different than saying all people who know Jesus will always be better than somebody who does not know Jesus in their behavior. And it's important to say because a lot of Christians, they, they come off as inauthentic, partially because largely they are inauthentic because they don't want to share their shortcomings. They, they don't want to be honest with other people, especially people who aren't Christian, about their real problems in their life because they're afraid it's going to make Jesus look bad. Because we all kind of live in a time where a lot of people say, oh, um, if Jesus is real, why don't you act better? But that's a misinterpretation, I think, of even what it's like to know God. This is all a way to say the difference between knowing God and not knowing God is not of degree of religious duty or religious sentiment. It's one of very nature. You know Jesus or you don't know Jesus. When you come to know Jesus, you are like a tree that has been planted. The, the main question here, oh, let me use one more metaphor to explain it. Jesus, uh, he says, you need to be born again. When you, when you follow God, it's like being born again. That is meant to be an absurd and kind of gross metaphor that says you, your life needs to be rebirthed. 
It needs to be restarted. It's a total reset button. It's a totally different thing. It's a totally new life. Coming to God is like being born again. It's, a, it's one of a change in nature. So when you know God, you're a tree that has been planted by God's grace, not far away from the stream, but right next to the stream. God is with you. His spirit is in you. You are saved in Jesus Christ. And so you are that tree planted by streams of water. And the metaphor goes like this. The tree gets its nutrients from the water. In the ancient Near East, um, you know, it's a desert. And there would be sudden flash floods that would bring all kinds of new in, uh, nutrients into the area. And then, then the, the top soil would be dry again. And yet, near those areas where rivers flow, where streams flow, there are constant trees that are evergreen. But it's because, not that there's constant water, but because the roots of those trees go down deep into underground streams that are always there. Evergreen trees in the ancient Near East, to follow the metaphor as it's stated to us in the Bible, are evergreen because their roots go down deep into a source of water that is constant. God is meant to be in this imagery, that metaphor, or that, uh, that source of nutrient. So they're located by the stream. The question is then, how deep do your roots grow? In order to be evergreen, in order to bear fruit in season, in order to be a big tree, you got to put your roots down deep. That's what biblical meditation does for us. Water is not always running. Some seasons are dry and hot. And while you're going through those, it's possible to stay evergreen because of the nutrients that you receive, the moisture that you receive from having deep down roots. Now, this is a tangent, but if you look in verse 3, you'll see that the tree yields its fruit in season. Uh, it's meant, uh, we're meant to read that and even notice that even healthy trees aren't producing fruit year round. Even healthy trees have seasons where they don't have observable results from God's work in their life. They're not constantly saying, I'm changing left and right. God is maturing me. God's giving me hope and I can sense it and it's changing my behaviors here and there. Um, there are seasons where we produce great fruit when we follow God, but there are also seasons where God's still working on us. We're still a healthy tree, but we're not producing the same amount of fruit. Tangent, but an important one. Even healthy trees aren't constantly bearing fruit in the same way as they do in other seasons. But rooted trees do produce fruit. And as the promise goes, their leaves do not wither. Christians who decide to meditate and draw the resources of hope and joy in Christ, they do not wither. Meditation is a way for us to drop those nutrients no matter what the circumstance of the season is in our lives. Joy, hope, meaning, the identity that we have in God, they're all ways for us to drop those nutrients. We have to meditate on those truths in order to put those roots down deep. And one more thing in our first point here. The alternative of being a healthy tree is chaff. Chaff has no roots. It produces no good. It doesn't have fruit that it produces. And if you look in verse one, it describes the process of living a chaff type life. Now chaff is one biblical metaphor for what it looks like to live a life without God that doesn't produce fruit and that's temporary. There are other biblical metaphors. There's dust, the dust of death. Uh, dust is there, it blows away. You can get rid of it anytime you want and it's gone. And it rises up for a minute, it lives and then it dies, dust. Another biblical metaphor in the Old Testament would be flowers. They're beautiful, they're here, and then the scorching heat comes out and they're dead. Another biblical metaphor, especially in the Psalms, is mist. It's here, it's hovering over us, it's alive, 
thus the heat comes out and it's gone. All biblical metaphors to say there are people's lives who are built up. Though they're here now, they will not last. They're not eternal. They're dust. They're chaff. Here's the process of, of us living a life that's like chaff. Verse one, blessed is the man who does not, and look at the progression here. Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. It's an increasing level of permanence. Walk with the counsel of the wicked, walking with people, having conversation with, and being influenced by the, the going in the same direction as people who the Bible calls wicked. Or the next level of permanence, spending more time by standing in the click of the way of sinners, standing in the industry of, and in the dialogue of, and then sitting in the seat of mockers. You're sitting down now. You're planted. You're a part of this community. And pay attention to the word mockers. Uh, Other translations use the word scoffers. It really does illustrate for us what the Bible is getting at by saying there is an objective moral standard that the Bible has, that there are people who do good and there is objective evil. When people are mistreated, God can call it out and say that is wrong. Racism, genocide, abuse. They are wrong because God has a standard for morals. That's why the Bible can get off saying, you are being wicked. Now, a lot of people, I think, have a hard time with God saying there are wicked people because we have this inherent hypocrisy in our lives where we say, uh, those people are evil. And then when God calls people wicked, we say, why is God so heavy handed in the Bible calling people wicked and wrong? We have that hypocrisy. We think everyone is just a product of their upbringing or everyone is just a product of their circumstances. No one should really be uh, like uh, blamed for their individual decisions. Everyone's good at heart. And the Bible says, listen, when people do wicked, I'm calling it out. I've got an objective standard. I'm able to say, God is in a sense throughout the pages of scripture saying, when I see evil, I'm calling it out and I'm doing something about it. And that's why God is good and just. This passage names it three times. And one of them, is scoffers, mockers, people who, when they hear the truth of God's word, instead of instead of entertaining it and wrapping their minds around it and trying to understand the mind of God revealed to us, they scoff. <sighs> That's the argument. Scoffing is just, God would say that, he's God, yada, yada. It's in, really, if you ever get in a discussion with someone and you catch yourself scoffing, it's like the weakest of all forms of argument. It's just, you would say that. You're this kind of person. You would say that. You come from this kind of background or this. You have money. You don't have money. You're of this ethnic group. You would say that. It's just scoffing. People who scoff and mock just hear the truth of God and it will never ring true to their hearts and their minds because in the end, they've made the decision to be in opposition to God's truth. That's the wicked. It's the it crowd. It's the the forces of influence that will not let God's truth into the culture, into people's lives, into their industry. That is what wicked sinners that mock are described in this passage. And a lot of people um, have a hard time with being able to identify who's wicked and who's a scoffer. But I think instead of trying to call it out on other people, check your own heart for the ways that you scoff at God's truth. And then pay attention to the ways that you spend increasing amounts of time in the rhythm of your normal week, walking with, standing with, and sitting down in ungodly, wicked beliefs that are shaping your life. That is itself, walking, standing, and sitting is itself a discipline. And now the Bible's trying to help you to have a new discipline. 
a new rhythm of life and a new standard for who you spend time with and where you, uh, what you're influenced by. Enough about that. Let's move on to our second point and let's get practical. Um, God helps us put our roots down deep and we need to open our lives up to the possibility, change our schedules so that we can practically start to do meditation. So the first question is, how do we practically think about the habit of biblical meditation? Well, you should think of biblical meditation as a bridge to prayer. So how do we do it? It's, you have, it has to be a bridge between Bible study and prayer. And that's a great habit. And um, if I'm honest, when I'm on my spiritual disciplines and I'm making that a priority, this is like the number one habit that I exhibit in my own life. Sometimes if it has to be in 30 minutes, it ends up being 10 minute Bible study. I'm looking up words. Um, I'm Googling stuff from trusted sources. I'm thinking about um, themes that I see in scripture. Like I'm studying the passage, whatever it is, Psalm chapter one. I'm looking at the words that pop out to me. I'm studying it, 10 minutes. If it has to be 30 minutes, then I'm gonna spend 10 minutes also in biblical meditation and then 10 minutes in prayer. And let me flush out why I think those kinds of habits might help you to reinvigorate your joy in Jesus and your spiritual discipline life. Psalm 1, as I mentioned, is an intro to the prayer book of the Bible. But you'll notice Psalm 1 is not itself a prayer to God. Psalm 1 is not directed at God. It actually is a meditation to start the the prayer book of the Bible. And it's a meditation on meditation. Um, Eugene Peterson says that meditation is the key to prayer. Um, For example, if you have a stale prayer life, or if you feel like your time in prayer to God is just like an echo chamber of your own requests and your own thoughts, you end up praying the same thing over and over again, and you're not sure what to pray or how you can kind of like unlock some sort of like uh, exciting prayer life. It might be because you're not connecting what you know about God to your heart, getting those roots down deep in God and taking time to let it kind of warm your heart and then go to prayer. If you have a boring prayer life, it's not because God's boring. It's not because his spirit's not even present in those times. It's It might be because you're boring. It might be because you're not getting new information about God to change your heart and then go to prayer. And so um, if you connect Bible, truth about God, to prayer with the bridge that is meditation, that might help you reinvigorate some of your prayer life. I'll illustrate it like this. I am 35 now, but when I put my soccer cleats back on and I go back on the field to get some uh, physical exercise, I still think I'm 19. I still think I'm as flexible as I was when I was 19. And those of you who might be even older, but still excited about sports and try and get good exercise, you know that when you're a wiser person who's a little bit older, you know you have to warm up and stretch. And you know, because if you jump right to it, you might hear that popping noise, that pulling sensation that might ruin the rest of your month or even the rest of your year. And so smart people, when they try and get some exercise, when you get a little bit older, you got to warm up and stretch. In the same way, just going to prayer can, can make your prayer life cold and stiff. But if you use biblical meditation as a way to take the truths that you see in God and warm up and stretch out, and get used to kind of like sitting with those truths. Now, when you go to prayer, you have something to pray about that's new, where God might teach you something new and cause you to pray things that you never prayed before because it's informed by scripture and then allows your deep roots to to go down deep and get some new nutrients in your life. 
So meditation is a bridge to prayer. Read the Bible, meditate on what you read, and let those things sink into your heart. Um, 1600s hymn writer and author Richard Baxter wrote this. Meditation is distinguished from the study of God's word, wherein our principal aim is to learn the truth, and also from prayer, where God himself is the immediate object, the thing we pray to. But meditation is the affecting of our own heart and mind with love and delight and humility towards the things that are contained in God's word. I'll borrow from Ethan's passage last week when I, uh, I'm thinking of Psalm 103. The beginning of Psalm 103 is so cool. It says, the, the psalm writer says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. This is a meditation. This is the psalm writer speaking to the, the psalm writer's self and saying, Come on, soul, you know God is worthy of worship. Bless the Lord. You know, self, don't forget about all his benefits, all the things that are good about his character and what he's done for you and your future in him. Meditation is saying, come on, heart. You know you need to sit with those truths and think about the implications in your mind and in your emotions before we go to prayer as an exercise. So what does meditation feel like? It feels a little bit like putting flesh on the bones of scripture. You have to ask primarily through asking questions. You have to look at scripture and then ask questions like, what would my life look like if I perfectly obeyed God in this area? And just sit with it. Sips a cup of coffee, put it down, fold your hands, quiet your mind and think, what would my life look like if I obeyed God here? Does that scare me? Does it make me think that if I obeyed God in this area, then he wouldn't take care of me? I don't know what would happen and that scares me. Or you might ask the question, um, how if I perfectly obeyed or if I perfectly believed this truth about God, what would that change in my work? How would that change my parenting? How would it change my self-esteem? That's biblical meditation. You're putting flesh on those bones. You're starting to, to see the picture from black and white to in color. It's starting to make it resonant in your mind. And you're asking, God, show me this passage in an emotional way. Show me this passage in color, in a new way, in my life in 2020. Martin Luther asked these three questions, and I can give them to you. He would look at a passage, and he would write down everything that he saw in the passage, and then he would ask, how does this truth make me praise God? What sins do I need to confess in light of this truth? And what do I need to pray in light of this truth? So let's just sit for a second. Let's meditate on Psalm 1, which is a meditation on meditation. Let's sit with this. God is like a stream. And in God's grace, I have been planted as a tree next to that stream. And God is bringing me nutrients. How does this truth lead me to praise God? God, thank you that even if the soil is dry up top, that when my roots go down in you, you can continue to nourish me. Thank you, God, for that. How can I praise God for this truth? God, thank you that I'm, I'm, I'm promised that you're always going to bring me those nutrients, even when I feel like I, I, I can't go on. God, thank you for that. Thank you that to the extent that I have nutrients from you, I will produce fruit. And if I, if I feel like my life's not doing much and I tend to identify my self-worth with how much I'm producing and pleasing people and producing in different areas of, of my work or my life, even if I'm not 
pra- like practically doing amazing things right now, I still am healthy in you and I still can bring my roots down in you. And God, thank you that even when droughts come, it only causes me to make my roots, training my roots to go down deeper and deeper to get more of you, that underground stream. How can we praise God in that? What sins do I need to confess? Uh, I don't know about you, but God, sometimes I don't want to be planted next to you. I want to be my own stream and my own tree, and I don't want to depend on your uh, your provision. God, I repent of my desire to be my own tree somewhere else with my own independence. Help me to help me to be the kind of tree who delights in being near you. God, sometimes I roll into church. I don't want to praise you. I don't want to get out of my own self and my own life. God, speak the truth into my heart. Help me to speak the truth into my own heart to say, don't forget all his benefits. That's what biblical meditation looks like. So if I'm a tree and God's the stream, I studied it in Psalm 1, 10 minutes of meditation, 10 minutes of prayer. It might be a good habit for you. When do I do that habit? Practically speaking, Psalm 1 says day and night. Maybe it doesn't have to be day day and night. But maybe you should try that in the morning and in the evening. Maybe meditate and pray on the same passage in the morning and the evening and see how your day is different as you live with the passages of Scripture that you're reading. Let me close with this. Meditation is not Eastern meditation. Biblical meditation is not the emptying of your mind, as is the case with Eastern meditation. It's the engaging of your mind with the truth of God. That's the main difference. My fear is that when we use the word meditation, uh, and we just got a couple minutes into this sermon, I didn't clarify that it's not just sitting there and saying, "Om." it's not just emptying your mind. It's it's the difference between alcohol and coffee, to be quite honest. One numbs your senses and one sharpens your senses. And so biblical meditation, a little bit more like coffee. It's saying, God, help me to be fiercely logical about who you are, helping to be so logical and engaged with how powerful you are that it helps me to trust you in the thing I'm struggling with, that sort of thing. Easter meditation blocks rationality to experience pure intuition, empties your mind of thought and logic. Biblical meditation engages this truth furiously, thoughtfully. The difference, of course, is also the thing you look at. Eastern meditation, you look at the self and you really don't go beyond it. Biblical meditation, you look at scripture and you say, God, with your spirit, will you illuminate this into my life so that I can think through the implications? And the the important thing here as we close is why this works. If you look in verse two, it says, his delight is the law of the Lord. And just very briefly, I want to talk about some themes in the Bible. The law of the Lord refers to the Bible itself. When you see it throughout scripture, the law and the prophets just refers to the Bible that people had at that time to know God. It's God's revelation to them through his word. But also it's viewed through the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the moral standard of God for his people. So how are we to delight in the law of the Lord? Uh, That's a difficult thing because if you look in Isaiah 6, Isaiah, the prophet, when he was in the temple, saw God in a new way. He saw God's holiness, the the moral standard of holiness through God's law. He saw it in an image. God revealed himself to him in a powerful way. Uh, It says in the the beginning of Isaiah 6, 
In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, they all had six wings, and they were calling to one another, Holy, 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 the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. He's holy, he's high above us. And what's Isaiah's response? Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. When we look at the law of God, the standard that he has for the life that we should live, it ought to ruin us. Because outside of the popular belief that everyone's basically good and that all of us should just kind of like chill for a minute and not worry so much about the standard that God has for us, God is holy and powerful. And when we look at what he says about the law, it ruins us. Another example of this, you know, Jesus gets a a pretty good rap as being meek and mild and sweet. But if you meditate on Jesus's most famous sermon, you're not going to feel great. Like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you. The Old Testament law says don't murder. But I say, to paraphrase, the kind of uh, disdain for people that causes you to murder is the same disdain that you currently have when you hate people. And so if you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of the same uh, belief that is just made physical in the act of murder. And so if you hate someone in that way, then you're guilty of murder. Meditate on that. Jesus' standard is holy. Meditate on the Sermon on the Mount and, and you'll say, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, there was though one person who always followed God's law, always delighted in God's law. And he's spoken of, of, of in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. It says that Jesus declared, here am I, I come to do your will. Jesus always did God's will. He always believed in and delighted in the law of God. Like in the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, in Jesus's life, he said a lot of stuff, a lot of famous stuff. 10% of all of the words that Jesus said in the New Testament are just quotes from the Old Testament. Like a whole 10% of all the teachings that are famous in the world today were not just new ideas, they're just quotes from the law and the prophets. God, uh, Jesus lived his life delighting in God's law. If you, uh, case in point, if you look at Jesus's reaction on the cross, he's dying on the cross, nails, pain, bleeding, and he quotes Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all the commentators know that when he says the first line of the psalm, he's quoting the whole psalm. He's referencing the whole psalm. What's the psalm say? Psalm 22, verse 14, I'm poured out like water. You lay me in the dust of death. Very simply, we can delight in God's law only through Jesus Christ because he became dust, the the dust of death. Because he became chaff, you can be a tree that never withers. Because he took on sin on the cross, because he took on the punishment that only we or that that we deserve, we get the to be planted next to God, the position that only Jesus deserves. He became chaff. He became sin who knew no sin. And because of that, we get to be planted near the stream and have our livelihood come from God because of his grace through Jesus Christ. So obeying God's word, delighting in God's law, it means that you always love God telling you how to live your life. And Jesus delighted in God, God the Father, and his uh, ordinance, his law, 
revealed to us and, and uh, in, in part revealing the impending death of Christ that would save the world. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. He was always rooted in that stream on the cross, was willing to be treated like chaff, temporary and to die so that we could be planted in his place. Now, we can delight in God's law because when we delight in God's law, we see the law, we see the holy standard that God has for us. And it only illustrates and accentuates how much the word and God's holiness and his standard points us to Jesus. To quote Romans 8, because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We look at the law, we delight in it. It draws us to honor God with our lives, but also see that the law only shows us how much God's grace has changed us and saves us. The law pushes us to Jesus every time we read it. We need him to obey the law today, but it also shows us how free we are because of Christ's death on the cross. So the trials that we're going through now are like a winter, like a long, wet, dark winter. And actually, it's September. Is it September? I forget what month it is. But like we're headed in to like a literal winter. We need to combat the dreariness and the darkness of the situation that we are in right now with the truth that we are planted next to God by his grace. And we need to be training ourselves to dig those roots deep down into the nutrients so that God can feed us and give us joy in Jesus in this time.